the optimal life. Mr. Max Miller, how are you today? Doing well, Nate. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. Thanks for joining me. I wanted to start with, um, I'm on your website, votemaxmiller.com. And on the homepage, of course, endorsed by President Donald Trump. Here's what Trump said about you. Max Miller is a wonderful person who did a great job at the White House and will be a fantastic congressman. He is a Marine veteran, a son of Ohio, and a true patriot. Max Miller has my complete and total endorsement. What does that mean to you? It means the world to me. I, I had blood, sweat, and tears with that man over the past six years of my life. And, you know, starting out with him in February 2016, I started off at the very, very bottom. And, it, you know, I was able to climb, you know, up the ladder and through the ranks because of hard work, dedication, and loyalty. And he saw that. And this cycle, when we had discussions about, you know, potentially if I were, if I was going to seek public office, you know, he looked at me and he was like, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to back you. I'm going to endorse you because look what you've done over the course of the last six years for me, but not just for me, but for the American people in the country. And he put it in that type of perspective. And when he said that to me, it hit me like a ton of bricks. And it wasn't just, you know, you're never just serving one person when you work in the administration, you're serving every single American within our country and ones overseas who may be stationed somewhere, whether in a uniform or at the state department or another federal agency that may be overseas. But his endorsement, and I don't think anyone can argue this, is it's the most powerful political endorsement politics has ever seen. I mean, when that man, especially in the state of Ohio, once he decides to back you fully, I mean, you have seen what it has done to the trajectory of some people. Uh, now, for me, for example, I, look, I put in a lot of hard work in this campaign and, you know, same thing. But, you know, his endorsement, it did help. You cannot deny that. And it also helped J.D. Vance. I mean, before... JD was in roughly third or fourth place in, in, in some polls in second, but with the Trump endorsement, he ended up winning in a very competitive Senate primary with, I think there were five or six people left and he won by 10 points pretty handedly. So yeah. all, all in all, you know, yeah, his endorsement is great, um, you know, for people who are running for office, but why it means the most to me is because, I mean, he put it into perspective. It just wasn't what I was doing. You know, it was for everyone in the country, right? Like everything that I had to do in that time, serving him, serving the American people. That's why it means so much to me. And yeah. I think his record is like 100 and, you know, whatever, 50 something to six. So that's a pretty good record. It's a good statistic. Oh, yeah. Uh, so as a White House aide, what exactly were you doing? What were your responsibilities? So. I'd say two and a half years into three years in the administration, that's two and a half, two to two and a half years, I was named the youngest director of advance in White House history. So what my main job was at that time is if he left the gates of the White House, whether it was for a domestic trip to, let's say, Cleveland, Ohio, uh, I would have to manage every single aspect of that. And I'd work hand in hand with the United States Secret Service and the White House military office, coordinating all of his, all of his logistics. But at the, at the same time, being responsible for his event production. So all of the events that you see, all of the rallies that, you, you know, that he continues to do, I was, you know, helping plan all of that. Uh, and, and every little logistical thing that you can imagine, whether it was a landing zone, working with Whammo to make sure that they could get Marine One down that, you know, figuring out his drive time and then making sure we had adequate staff. But, you know, for a domestic trip, and depending on the threat assessment level, you could be overseeing 250 people, you could be overseeing 500 people. And on the flip side of that, you know, if you're going overseas, 
like we were in North Korea or Iraq, Afghanistan, things like that. I mean, you're bringing in, you know, a ton of people. Now, the Iraq and Afghanistan trip, we kept smaller, but let's use North Korea, for example, or India or France. We would send a team of, you know, it could be a thousand, could be 2000 people all underneath our purview, making sure that, you know, the president will always maintain looking like a president, acting like a president, has the feel. And it's the ambiance that really brings a lot of it. I mean, you've seen Joe Biden uh, in the White House and in, in the executive office building right across the street from the White House. He's made this entire fake Oval Office set. You know why? I don't know why he did that, but I know that it helps him look more like a president if he's in a very controlled setting, which gives the American people more confidence in his ability to carry out anything that he does. The problem is he's just so senile that it doesn't really help much, period. Yeah, what's going on with with Biden? What's your if you have to summarize in a few sentences his the first this first half of his administration? How would you summarize that? Man, first couple of sentences. I'm going to need. I, I can write it. <laughs> I can write it now. Um, here's the problem: is that it's if there's one word to describe it, it's it's abhorrent. And then if you want, you know, a couple of words to then describe it some more, it's self inflicted. Everything that we have seen in this country in the past year and a half is a direct result because of Biden's policies. We were energy independent. We had a secure southern border. We were sticking it to China with tariffs on steel and everything else that we went ahead and implemented. Right. I mean, we had we felt safe in our country. We we did. I never had to go outside and worry if something going to happen to me today. I mean, there was an there was, a, I believe, a 17 year old girl who was abducted in the Terminal Tower parking lot. Um, just and that's a, here a, in Cleveland for people that don't know. Right. And that was just a week and a week and a half ago. And, and, and nice young woman and just, you know, poof and gone. And, and, and they still have not found out what's happened to her. I mean, this is where we've gone in our country to where, you know, we can't even get baby formula for expecting mothers who have to prepare for something like that or for mothers who are weaning their children off of, you know, their breast milk or if they just went straight to formula. I mean, it's a huge problem. Yet. We want to print, you know, more money to go overseas and we want to stack the deck for illegal immigrants and give them pallets of baby formula. And Americans, in my opinion, are now being treated as second class citizens in our own country when we're prioritizing. I think it's one point three five or one point four million illegal immigrants have now settled in our country. And I saw that statistic this morning. So it's gut wrenching. I mean, they're systematically changing the fabric of our Constitution. And we as the American people and our freedoms as we know it. How do people even afford gas? I saw gas prices at north of eight dollars in Los Angeles this week. That's that's insane. That's got to it's got to cost you two hundred dollars to fill up a, a sedan almost. Well, okay, think about this. I did a tour of the USS uh, Minnesota or Minneapolis. I believe it's the USS Minneapolis. It's uh, they were taking off today, parked outside Lake Erie, right by the Brown Stadium. That ship is a brand new ship. It's an attack ship that the Navy had just produced, I think, within the last year or so, a couple of years. Here's the kicker. Uh, I asked them, I said, so what is the main operating, uh, you know, thing that's going to feed this, this, this attack ship while you're out in sea? And he said fuel. And I said, all right. I said, well, how many gallons of fuel do you need to have a full tank in this, in, in this bad boy? And he looked at me and he said, over 100,000 gallons. Mm. 100,000 gallons, right? So if we want to take that number of $8 of gasoline in California or Los Angeles, think about what the American military is now paying for gasoline because of an incompetent president who refuses to let up on, you know, 
fracking, drilling, there's plenty of oil underneath our feet and off of our shores that could ease that up, that would bring down inflation, probably a couple of points. What, what's po- the reason? What's his rationale, his administration's rationale for doing that, for making us more dependent? What, what, how do you justify it? What do, what do they say? There's, there's no other reason that I can, that I can think of that, and I'll, I'll let you know what their perspective is that I hear, but that they want to snuff everyone out of gas-operated vehicles because they have been pushing this whole narrative. And what they'll tell you is that, you know, well, it's only $55,000 for an electric vehicle. Well, you know, the average salary in our district is barely above $55,000. So to go ahead and ask a normal American who's barely making ends meet to go ahead and to get an electric vehicle, which, by the way, has a lithium ion battery, which is 10 times as dirty and producing a coal fire plant in China than anything else, which hurts our environment more so than what we were doing here in terms of drilling underneath our feet and off of our shores, their counter argument to all of this crap, and it really is crap in all of these experts, as, as we've seen throughout the past two years, whether it be for pandemics or climate change or this and that, is that, you know, we need to save our environment, right? We need to protect the ozone. Well, look, I'm all about preserving, you know, our environment, the world. It's the only one that we have. We're never going to get a new one, right? There's not going to be some massive exploration to outer space where we're going to go resettle everyone. That's never going to happen. So- Yet here we are suffering militarily and not even militarily, but just everyday American civilians are suffering because of 8.3% inflation. We don't have energy independence. And I believe this is all done on purpose. And this whole ruse of climate change, you know, he rejoined the Paris Climate Accords, right? I mean, he did that on day one. So that sent a very strong message to the American people of what direction he was going to go into. And I firmly believe they're doing this on purpose, yet we have our biggest geopolitical ally in China. They just opened up 12 new coal-fired plants in the last year. How can we compete with that? Because at some point, who's going to come save us? Because we love to save everyone else when we never prioritize Americans or our country first. And that is why I decided to run for Congress. And that's why President Trump's message of America first resonates with so many people. And it's not even just Republicans anymore. It's independents and it's Democrats. And we've seen that crossover, especially in, our, in the last primary we just had about four weeks ago. I mean, we saw an eight-point crossover of first-time Democrats and independents, and we cross-verified this and checked it, that they picked up a Republican primary ballot for the first time. Now, usually they do that in the general, but these people are so fed up, right? They couldn't even stomach voting for a Democrat, so they switched their voter registration. I mean, that you know, that's Ohio, right? I mean... And that's specific to Ohio, because that's what I know. I don't know what it's like everywhere else in the country when it, t- when it comes to voting. But I will tell you this, that Tom Emmer, who runs the NRCC, said he expects a 10 point swing in Republicans favor come November. So that's, that's huge. Crack. That's huge. Well, we need it. This, is, this society has gone so kooky, especially from the far left side. People are just... Uh, I'm still convinced that a lot of the the craziness is more of a loud minority than it is anything else. I think it's a smaller group of people, but with social media, with the internet, with all, for some reason, they're able to resonate really loud. And then that's what everyone's talking about. But when you meet people in person, when you talk to just normal people, it's, you don't come across these crazies very often, but let me ask you, a couple things. There's so many ways we can go, but a couple of things. Why, wh- why has our country gone this way? What is going on with this young generation, this woke narrative? What, what, what's caused that, in your opinion? Entitlement issues. 
Uh, I mean, we, these kids are now, this is how my father put it to me. And this is, and, and I firmly do believe this because I'm a millennial and underneath us is Gen Z's and I served in the Marine Corps reserves proudly. Um, and I bring that up because I think if there was a draft today, more people would take their cell phones like this and go like this and be like, Hey, mom, dad, I'm getting arrested because I don't want to go to war. Right. I mean, really, or they'd flee mm. to Canada. That's, that's what I firmly believe, uh, you know, what would happen. And my dad put it to me like this. He said, growing up, you know, I never had everything that I wanted, right? My parents were, you know, it was just a different generation. They were a little tougher, right? I mean, everyone back then was raised differently than where we are today. I mean, look, I, there's a transgender uh, woman in Rocky River School, you know, six months ago. That's how far we've come uh, in roughly my father's 67. So let's call it 50, you know, 55 years. But he said, you know, when we were younger, we always used to talk, you know, with friends and say, you know, when I have kids, I'm going to give them everything they've ever wanted, or I'm going to try to afford them everything that I possibly can that my parents never gave me. And I think that things in this country, especially outsourcing things to China, have made things so affordable and cheap, but yet we can spoil our children and not spend an egregious amount of money, but still get them everything that they want now. And I think that's been done. And I think all of these, you know, kids and not kids, but I guess adults in my generation and, you know, people younger than us, they have that sense of entitlement when you talk to them. They feel like they're owed something, right? Like, no, minimum wage should be $15. Well, have you operated a business? Do you know what it's like to sign, you know, you know, the front of the check, right? Because I know what it's like for you to sign the back of one, but what's it like signing the front of one, right? And you have all this overhead and everything comes together and they want, 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 and they take, 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 but they never give. And when they give, for the most part, it's a pretty crappy, wokey opinion on what we see today. I mean, I really feel as if this entitlement issue has just really soured, uh, you know, these individuals' heads. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You see it too with even at our business, the old school, I mean, it's just in, in the business world, the old school employees, they, there was a higher level of work ethic. Yeah. It, just across the board in society, it's just a different mentality. And I totally agree with you. Um, you mentioned the transgender thing. So uh, what's your take on the transgender in sports, especially like the Leah Thomas, the swimmer who was a man, became a woman and then won the swimming meet? Is that OK? Absolutely not. It's incredibly upsetting. And I find it disgusting. Uh, and here's why, you know, yeah, there's, you know, there's Leah Thomas or whatever his name is, you know, does, does he, does he or she really feel that way? I'm sure that, that he or she does. Right. But you are doing a detriment to women. There was one female who was cut from the NCAA swimming championships because there is a man who feels that he's a woman who's six foot, I don't know, three or four and weighs, you know, buck 90 and his reach and his length is two or two to three times greater than a female. And he dusts the entire field. That is not, you have a competitive advantage physically, right? There, when you're born, you are born with, you know, one or two parts. And in some cases, maybe three, which is extremely, extremely rare in a hermaphrodite, but you are a male or a female. And I think what it's doing right now, and you said it earlier and you hit something in, in your spot on dude, that the, the smallest minority is always the loudest in the room. And we're seeing that with this whole transgender movement. I mean, Adidas has a commercial on TV 
right? If I had a kid right now and they were plopped down in front of the television and they could understand what they were seeing, hearing, it would be a huge problem for me. I mean, we're catering to a population that was less than a quarter of a fraction of a percent. And now it's ballooned, uh, you know, I think over 20% of people now identify as something other than a male or female in our country. Hmm. Why? Because we've made it socially acceptable for people to go around. I mean, I'll tell you what, Emily and I were driving around. Um, I think we were in, we were, no, we were in Westlake. We were at Crocker Park and we were going there for lunch and there was a full man. I mean, a, a, a large man dressed in a pink dress walking around. I mean, that is where we are as a country. I actually truly do believe that it's a mental health issue more so than anything else. And, and I think that, you know, we should help them as much as we possibly can. My biggest fear for those individuals is, especially the young ones who, who are not even of age, who have yet to have their, their brains really formulated into what it should be and matured, that, you know, great, they want to be a male or a female today and maybe for the next few years. But what happens when they carve up their bodies and they give themselves full mastectomies? And then they decide to, you know, put an appendage down below and replace their genitalia or vice versa or to remove, right, you know, your penis or, to, you know, to add breasts to a man. You know, are these people going to feel the same way in five to 10 years from now? Studies right now will already tell you that, yeah, they'll want to revert back to their traditional gender that they were born. And it, I think it's going to be a huge problem and we're going to end up dealing with it. And the Biden administration, the left and the Democrats should be the ones that are going to have to pay for it, but they won't. The sad thing is we're all going to have to pay for that. Well, yeah, that's the thing. Just because a kid may be confused or conflicted or having a bad day, it's almost like there's certain outlets at schools and wherever these people are, counselors, they're almost enticing them. Hey, it's okay to maybe you need to change your gender. And maybe I'm being extreme, but I've heard these things about these safe spaces at school and these gender rooms. And, uh, you know, just because you're feeling off or funky, I mean, boy, I don't know. That, what's your take? I mean, should a, a minor even be allowed, even with parental consent, should a minor be allowed to change their gender in a physical, you know, uh, operative, operative way? No. But parental consent is huge in this country, as it should be. And parents have the right. But I think that mutilating your child uh, to, you know, make yourself feel better about maybe their struggles at that point in time in their life isn't the long term solution to fix their problem. And that is the core issue here. And yeah, I, I mean, it's just it, it's incredibly upsetting to watch all of this happen. And you're not taking things out of context or exaggerating. I was at a school board meeting. This had to be at this point, maybe eight to 10 months ago. And this was in Berea. Um, and, and a gentleman stood up and you're not going to believe this because I still can't believe this. And it happened. So he stands up and he's like, my son just got an email, does the whole thing, stands up. And, you know, and he was like, listen to this email, stops the whole meeting. Say, okay. So he starts reading the email. It was by a guidance counselor to his 12 year old son, his 12 year old son. And he didn't get the email, but his son got the email and it said, excuse me, if you're feeling a certain way about your gender, or if you're curious, or if you want to know more about the opposite sex, or maybe you, if you feel a certain way, now I don't remember the language verbatim, but it was pretty, pretty close to that. Please come see me either during school hours or after hours during, you know, after school hours. Now the parent, the father didn't get that email. And I can tell you that when I went to Shaker Heights high school and I was 13 years old, 
And if there was a PG-13 movie on, I still had to go get a permission slip to get my parents to sign it just so I could watch it. And, and, and look, I graduated in 2007. It's 2022. That wasn't that long ago. I mean, that was, I mean, we're talking about a timeline here within 15, 16 years. It's not much, maybe a little longer, but yeah. It's interesting. Parental consent is so important when various groups of people want it to be. Yet when they don't want the parents involved and they want to circumvent, they just say, forget the parental, we're going to go right to the student. So it's, it's almost just caters to this certain situation. It's very contradictory almost in a way. That's a right out of the Democrats playbook. They're all hypocrites. And it's not, and I'm not saying that they're bad people. Look, I like, there's plenty of Democrats I like, and there are some that I know that I'm going to be able to work with and get great things accomplished in legislation for this country being bipartisan. But when you're dealing with, you know, the woke left and the progressive left, you know, these people who you know, are emboldened to go ahead and tell you how you should raise your children and how teachers should be raising your children and molding them. What are you molding our kids into? Right. Because that is a parent's job. It is my job. It is your job. Nate, right. If we have kids that we mold those children into almost images of us, but better images of us. We always want our kids to be better than who we are. And what they're taking away from parents right now by go ahead and circumventing the system, because it's not wrong if they do it. It's only wrong if we do it. It's OK. It's the same thing with abortion. Right. Well, now we're terrible people because, you know, Roe v. Wade is now going to be overturned. Well, the Supreme Court has made that ruling and it leaked and there's nothing that can be done about it. And, you know, for that, I am happy. But, you know, if it was the other way around, right, they'd be taking victory laps around and then they'd be, you know, still saying that, you know, blah, 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 that we're forcing people to have children to term and X, Y and Z. It's just not right. And they'll take anything and weaponize it against us. But the moment we do it to them, you know, the sky's falling. Well, yeah, it's there's a lot of contradictory. I mean, I, I, it's nice when you can talk to rational people that you don't see eye to eye with, but that are rational. They're like, yeah, we we see that. I love, we see that the fact that we say my body, my choice. Yet when the government's telling us to mask up and vaccine up, we go rushing to do what they they told us to do. So it's funny how it's my body, my choice in one issue. Yet it's maybe not so much my body, my choice in another issue. Yeah, you know. But, it's, a, it's, it's, it's all that they do. I, I mean, look at everything that they've done, uh, especially policy wise and especially my body, my choice um, and everything that they've constructed. Even, you know, they embrace the Black Lives Matter movement, which I still think is a very controversial entity. I mean, once Amazon kicks you off as a charity, you know that you're no good. I, I mean, they're, look, Jeff Bezos finally uh, decided to be strong and attack Biden. I mean, that should send a, a clear and present message that this country is headed in a very, very wrong direction if the man who owns the Washington Post is going to make that comment about our commander in chief. Yeah, absolutely. Spot on. So let me ask you back on that abortion thing, because it is a hot topic, something you're probably going to be talking a lot about uh, as the campaign trail continues. Um, what's your take? I mean, uh, this is probably the toughest one for me personally, because I do think that it's the most gray of all the issues. Um, again, there's exceptions, there's the rape thing, the, you know, various exceptions that could be horrific situations. Are you a hundred percent pro-life? And if so, give us the reasoning. I am, uh, I I'm a big believer that life starts at conception, uh, in all forms. And so when that happens, I believe at that point, you know, and I know that murder is a very strong word to use and Republicans and people who are pro-life 
who aren't even Republicans use that word. But I, I do believe that it is the case. But there needs to be, you know, what they're going to head and do is they're going to implement this. And then it's going to be incumbent upon states to find the cutoff. Now, what I find absolutely disgusting is that when you look at, right, that when you have a, and I don't know the full intricacies of, you know, full term to birth and over the course of the nine months, but once a child is fully formed within a womb and, it, and a heartbeat is detected, that is a living entity. That is a child that, that, that will be born, should be born into this world. And look, I think there are lots of things that people can do. And there are Republicans that will tell you that they need to ban birth control and contraceptives because that is also a form of murder. That I do not agree with. I think that if you take preventative measures and you're responsible about who you are as an adult and you can make your own decisions for yourself, then you know you should end up with a desirable result that you would seek, whether that comes from childbirth or maybe it comes from not childbirth. But there yeah, is that's point- almost as extreme as somebody saying you could abort a baby at 39 weeks. Both of those things don't make any sense. Right. Yeah. Right. But the sad thing is, it's not, you know, by the truckload or anything like that. But if you look across our entire country, how many late term abortions do happen, it will shock you and it will shock people in this country. And essentially, and I've seen videos of it, it's absolutely horrific. They will have a full baby that will come out of the womb and the doctor will take a pair of scissors and snip right back here where your spinal cord is connecting it to your brain. And, then, and they say that that is a painless death. And then what they do with those bodies afterwards, whether it's for stem cell research or, you know, whatever have you, uh, experimental science, I think it's incredibly wrong. I mean, especially as someone who's Jewish, once you perish from this earth, you should be buried immediately within 48 hours, unless it's over a Sabbath, because that gives you and your family peace and peace of mind, right? And these individuals who have been taken from us, in my opinion, way, way, way too soon, they don't even get that. You know, they don't even get that experience. Like who knows if they're settled in life, if they have found, if they believe in, you know, or or their parents or whomever believed in that afterlife. I don't know, but it's incredibly upsetting to go down that road to think about, you know, well, what will happen to that child? Because they are a child, but yeah, yeah. it is. It's that's, it's a tough, it's a tough one, but I was curious to see where you stood on it. And I'm not surprised uh, on your stance. Um, you did mention Jewish. Let's jump to this because I know you serve um, on the United States Holocaust Memorial Council. Yeah. Um, and uh, you believe there's some people in Congress that um, are anti-Semitic people. You have it wow. on your website. Well, yeah, I don't believe I know they are. Uh, I mean, just how, look so? at the- how, how do we know this? They just pushed a piece of legislation trying to get Israel's rights taken away from them last week. Uh, pushed by the squad, Ayanna Presley, AOC, uh, Rashida Tlaib, the rest of the clown show and the clown car that I that I think they are. I mean, really what they are, they're just, they're a bunch of jihadists. And I'm sorry. Actually, I'm not sorry that I just said that because they literally want Israel to perish. And what a lot of people, you know, there, there aren't many of us. There aren't many Jews. If you even look in the House of Representatives right now on the Republican side, there are only two Jewish individuals, Ken Kustoff and Lee Zeldin. One out of Tennessee and Kustoff and one out of New York and Lee. Two great guys. But we are not, there's not, there's not many of us. And throughout the years, look what's happened to us. We have constantly been abused. We've constantly been subjected to slavery. And most recently, we were constantly, we were subjected to genocide, a full-on genocide where six million of our people were taken from us and just murdered for no reason because Hitler needed a scapegoat to start his war. And 
as someone who feels very, very strongly about this, every Jew should own a weapon and every Jew should be proud of who they are and where they come from, because it can happen again. And we're seeing it now in the streets of New York City and anti-Semitic rhetoric that is on the idiot box, on the TVs, on the computers, on your cell phones, saying, you know, crazy thing about Jewish people in Israel and how Israel, Israelis are a bunch of terrorists and Palestine should be erected as a state. This is all nonsense. Uh, this has already been settled in 1948. Let's move on. I mean, there will be no two-state solution. That so will never how, work. How, when, you, when you're in Congress and you're sitting there across from AOC, uh, Ilhan Omar, and several of these others that you call them, the, the clown pact or whatever, I mean, how do you get anything done with them? With people like that, I feel like you can, you can make a good faith effort and really honestly try. But what they fundamentally believe is not what the majority of Americans believe. And that's the disconnect, is that you have a small group of people, and you said it earlier, that control the narrative, right? I mean, they, the progressive left and that party and the Democrat party, they've taken over the entire party right now. I mean, they're all viewed as progressive left. There's not, there's a couple moderate Democrats and everyone will say, well, yeah, Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema. And I completely agree. And I think they're more Republican than they are Democrats, or they're actually just sound common sense, rational people. It could but, just be that, right. <laughs> right. I mean, it's probably more so that, but make a good faith effort. But really, I mean, just what I would like to know is I'd like to sit down with them and across, just like we're doing here, and just ask them why they feel the way that they do. Why are Israel? Do you Israel, think that they would admit to you that they're? If you said, "I believe you're anti-Semitic," Semitic, do you think that they would agree with that? No, but deep down, yeah, I don't think they'd ever say it publicly because, I mean, that would destroy their image. That would destroy their whole thing, um, and it would ruin their reputation by just saying, you know, you're a racist or you know, you're you're an anti-Semite. But deep down, they feel those things. They believe those things. They wouldn't be pushing these pieces of legislation if they didn't actually fundamentally believe that the state of Israel shouldn't exist. And that's where they're going with this entire thing. I mean, they have made it very clear their feelings on the state of Israel and the Jewish people. Uh, and but here's the problem. Jewish people enable them to do what they do. Yes, more I Jew totally agree with that. Yeah. yeah. More well, look at, and, and to take it one step further. Sorry to cut you off here. Oh, to piggyback off of what you just said, I mean, look at the guys like Bernie Sanders. Yeah. Who, who's a Jewish, Jewish, but uh, such a denier, such a such an anti-Israel type figure. Yeah, because he's a self-hating Jew, Nate. That's what these people are. And that's a very, I mean, look, to call any one of us a self-hating Jew is probably one of the worst things you could say to another Jewish person. Uh, and that's what I fundamentally believe. That would crush my soul. Uh, but that being said, they are. Look what they're doing in supporting their behavior, their rhetoric, supporting their legislation and everything that, that, they do, that they do and they stand for, right? They're not backing down. And more of our people vote Democrat than they do Republican. But more Republicans are Zionists than, than Democrats. And I think this whole message of just conflation of saying, you know, the Jewish message, we always need to take care of everyone around us. Jews always need to take care of Jews, but it's more so than that, right? We want to help take care of our earth, take care of our world, take care of everybody. And I feel like rabbis more and more on the conservative and reform end of the spectrum uh, about being Jewish have taken that message and conflated it. And so that's where we are today. And that's why I think so many Jews are like, well, we're letting in one, you know, we've let in 1.35 million illegal immigrants to settle here. That's a wonderful thing. But, but is it 
I understand that we're a country built off immigrants. I'm an immigrant, right? You're an immigrant, hands down. I mean, we know this. I don't even have to ask it, right? My family comes from, they hail from Bialystok, Poland. Right. But that being said, different times, right? Different times across the board. You know, we still have birthright citizenship. That should be off the table. No, I mean, so many people come to our country and take advantage of that right underneath our nose and people just stop talking about it. And there are only a handful of countries left in the world that still do that. Yeah. So, well, yeah, I, I agree. And, and the thing you mentioned before too, which I thought was a good uh, buzzword because you say, they say never again, you always hear never again, never again, the Holocaust, never again. I see all these Jewish people posting on Facebook, never again. Yet the moment the government told everybody to, to put on masks and to stay away from each other and to not gather as families during Thanksgiving and yada, 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 the list goes on and on. These people were all doing it. And oh, yeah. I'm not saying necessarily that it's the exact same thing, but it does start somewhere. Yeah, it, it, it all originates from something. I mean, and also think about this. Most people have been cooped up in their homes for two years straight. And then we wonder why everyone's going crazy. We wonder why our country's spinning out of control. We wonder why people are doing the things that they're doing and the awful acts that they're committing. Uh, I mean, this is standard Copenhagen syndrome. And, you know, we see that there's a drop off in labor and unemployment. Why? Because the federal government told everyone that they should be in their homes and the eviction moratoriums were given out. People were getting paid more on the state and federal level than they were going to actual work. I mean, they had we literally we indoctrinated our own country with laziness and complacency. And that has only made the entitlement issue that much worse. Right. Well, pay me. And I'm working from home on my computer, right? Like, well, we got to go in person and enough of this. And that is why people don't want to go out and work because they're getting paid more to sit on their butts at home than they are to go make a living and to really just feel good about themselves and contribute to society. I, I mean, you mentioned Copenhagen syndrome, uh, Max. Dig into that a little bit. Explain a little bit more about what, what that means. I mean, it's essentially Copenhagen syndrome, and they ran experiments. Uh, man, it had to be uh, maybe. 50 some odd years ago or a little less than that. Um, but basically what happens is when you were in one place for so long, it doesn't matter if it's a six by eight jail cell or you're locked up in a beautiful, you know, whatever, 2,500 square foot home, that if you spend so much time disconnected from reality and other people that you in turn actually become a little bit crazy and you start viewing things a little more abnormal than you really would, that's not based in reality. Because the fact is you're not in touch with reality. Right. If you're at home and you're just at home all day, 24 seven, you really have no idea what's going on out there. Now, you can watch the news. Sure. But all news is biased, whether you watch MSNBC to Fox News to, to CNN to Newsmax. It doesn't matter. Everyone's got their own slant and their own bias. But really, when you stay at home for that long, you have no idea what's going on. So you start to become a little bit paranoid. You start to question things. You start to wonder a little bit. You start to, you know. You know, you're on your computer more. You're looking at what's going on. You're asking people too many questions. But the fact of the matter is you just drive yourself completely insane. But this was a directive from our government to the American people. And this is an end result of what we've seen over telling everyone, stay in your homes or you'll die. Mm. I mean, that's what they were telling people, right? Stay in your homes or you will die. And I know that, that lots of people have died from coronavirus. And that's an awful, awful thing. But instead of pushing a vaccine and pushing all of this, what do we know about coronavirus that really does help people? Well, let's be healthier people. Let's be healthier Americans. Go to the gym. Take a 20-minute walk. Take care of yourself, 
right? I mean, these are things that we can do to help fight back and build our immune systems so we never have to listen to this craziness ever again and have some little tyrant tell you, you have to triple mask and you have to get a vaccine and then two boosters on top of it when they have no idea really fundamentally what this vaccine can do to us in the future. Well, now all that being said, Nate, I took the vaccine um, and I was a direct exposure to coronavirus nine times in my time at the White House. And I never, I never, never got it. Not once. Mm. I got the vaccine when I moved back to Cleveland, when I, I was here for roughly around six months, I went with M and then I got the vaccine. And then two weeks later, coronavirus. And it was the first time I ever got it. And I fundamentally believe that I got it because whatever strain that I got from that vaccine protected me against whatever. And I picked up something new. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they were telling you, take the vaccine, you won't get coronavirus, you won't die and you can't spread it or transmit it to anybody else. Blatant lies, but they have not corrected the record still to this day, even though they know that it's not that is not factually accurate. I mean, hey, if there's a, another pandemic when you're in Congress, how would you recommend that that is handled differently next time? What would we do different as a government? My hope is that that we would not shut down our economy, that we would not tell people to go home from work and that we would continue to do every single day what we do now, which is live our normal lives. You cannot live your life based off of fear. You cannot be fear of a virus or of an enemy. No, somebody coming. No, you have to live your life the way that you would normally traditionally do. And if other people want to lock themselves up in their homes, that's their job. That's their business. But a federal directive or even a state directive by governor telling you that you're not important because your job isn't that, you know, it isn't that prestigious, right? That say you're not essential staff, that you, you're told to go home. I mean, how demeaning and dehumanizing is that? So it is my hope that this country would remain open and remain free. And I want to reiterate, remain free from any type of mandates, period, because we're giving our, our individual rights are given to us by God, not the government. And, and really just keep on doing what we've been doing and keep on trucking and working through it. And, and do what President Donald Trump did. Get on the phone, get all the CEOs of all of the major pharmaceutical companies and say, here's my deadline. Get me this vaccine. Make a difference. Do your job, right? I mean, push these people. And you're not saying that out of Biden. He's not pushing anyone. He's the one getting pushed around. He's the one getting bullied. And he's the one snapping back. Biden at this point, you you mentioned he's so diminished. I mean, is he really you know what it's like? You've been in the Oval Office. You've been with Trump on many occasions. Is is Biden really running the show right now or is he just the figurehead and there's other people in control? And if those other people are in control, who's really doing it? What scares me is I actually do believe he's somewhat in control because of the, the brash decisions that he's made as the commander in chief. And I know for a certain instance, like the withdrawal from Afghanistan, Mm. that was his decision. And people told him, no, do not do it. And I remember they were briefing President Trump on this. And they said, I know you want to withdraw from Afghanistan, Mr. President, but if you don't leave a remain behind element there, we will lose that country and we will lose people around you. uh, And we don't want to see that happen. So what did the president do? Well, President Trump made the right decision to leave a remain behind element there and we still had stability or somewhat stability within the region. No American lives were, were threatened, right? We were, we're still okay. We hadn't lost a life, I believe, over there in 18 months since that day that Joe Biden wanted to pull out and do the re- reckless withdrawal. That decision, I know that he made. 
um, by somebody who works there and that is close uh, in that sphere. So he is still making decisions, unfortunately. <laughs> I, I, I think it's 60-40. I think it's 60 for the things he really cares about and wants to lay a marker down that they think can help his legacy. And I think the other 40%, he probably kicks off to Obama or Susan Rice. I mean, I know that Obama a few weeks ago uh, or a month ago told Biden, and it's been written about that he should have a disinformation czar. And then a week later, we had one. And then a week after that, it was gone. So, I mean, there are other people who are helping him make decisions along the way. You mentioned the legacy that he wants to lead, and he's got a few issues that are important to him. Obviously, one that has come out that's one of your biggest is you're defending the Second Amendment of the Constitution, and he doesn't see it the same way. He politicized, of course, this horrific event that happened in Texas last week, the Uvalde shooting. And uh, the first thing he said was, or one of the first things he said was gun control. And, yeah. uh, and that's now that's the narrative, gun control, gun control, gun control. So talk about Uvalde. What was your reaction to the horrific event? And then what's your take on the gun control thing? I think it's awful. I mean, what, what, what took place there? No one should ever forget that day. And we should pray for those families every single day because no one will understand uh, including myself with that loss, whatever could imagine to feel like, um, you know, I, I, I hope they rebound as fast as they can and they receive as much support from the people around them in that community and across the country. Um, it's disgusting what that, what that man did. And he, it's horrific. That being said, this has nothing to do with gun control uh, whatsoever. I mean, I, and people use these examples all the time and they're cheap talking points, but not really, if you really look into it, I mean, Go ahead and look at Chicago and New York City. Go look at L.A. Those three cities have the strictest gun laws in our entire country, yet more murders still happen in L.A., New York City and Chicago other than, you know, than the majority of the country. This isn't a gun control issue. This is a mental health issue that we need to look at and we need to respond to. I mean, I, I put out a tweet a few a couple of days ago and my team gave me a little crap for it, but I put it out anyway because I fundamentally believe it. And that is we need to treat our schools like we need to treat government buildings. We are evolving in society, whether it's through, you know, people who want to wear dresses or they want to wear you know pants and a suit and they want to play pretend to be another gender. Right. Here's the sad reality is that we will print 40 billion dollars to send to a foreign country, but we will not print 40 billion dollars to make sure that our kids are safe in their own schools. And I'm not even going as far as saying, you know, put armed guards there. Now, would I be for that? Yes, but I'm not going to go that far. This is what I'm going to tell you. Israel has only had six mass shootings since their inception as a country. Why? Because they limit their, their entry and exit points to each and every single one of their schools. They keep it to two to three single points of entry and exit. And there are multiple doors around you know, these schools that they have in Israel, but they're always monitored by cameras. Well, we should have the same system in place and we should also have something in place to where if people need to evacuate, then with a hit of a button or whatever, or with a flick of a switch, all doors are now open and unlocked and people can then evacuate in case of a fire. I mean, there are a lot of other mechanisms that we can put in place now. And the biggest thing is people are going to say, well, where do you plan on getting the money from? Well, the money really should be coming from the state level and not the federal level because the Department of Education and the feds should have nothing to do with our children's education. But in terms of safety, if it's not being run through the, the Department of Education, 
and maybe another entity, like maybe the Department of Homeland Security, uh, which I think that this would fit the bill, then that's something that I would think about and possibly consider. But there are other things that we can do to ensure that our children are safe. There is no greater treasure, and I really do mean this, there's no greater treasure than what we have other than our kids. So if you were to go to Washington, D.C. today and say you wanted to go to the Department of the Treasury building, good luck getting in, Nate. You're not. And so we need to stop making schools so accessible to random individuals who just want to come in. I mean, it's absolute nonsense. What is your purpose? Do you have a child here? Are you coming here for a class? Is there an after school program? I mean, you name it. But these are the questions. We need to be vigilant about this uh, and really take action and not just sit back. But yeah, but let me ask you for this guy who was complete psychopathic and suicidal and homicidal, he wasn't going to answer anyone's questions. So what do you do? How do you how do you ensure? Would you be for arming security at every single school in this country? Yes, I would be. Because even if that that sick gentleman who walked up to that school in the back door, that's and, and it's unfortunate because that door is propped open by a teacher. But say he was coming in through the front and that door is locked as it should have been, uh, he wouldn't have gotten into that school. There's no way he would have been he would have been hit. He would have been freaked out. I, and I don't care who you are. That if you've never and, and I have never experienced this either, but I've lost friends in war and I have had friends come back from war. And what they'll tell you is there's nothing that you've ever experienced quite like a firefight. And you don't know how someone is going to react in that moment. And even just seeing the the optic of an individual with a weapon while you have one can be enough to make someone turn around and go home. But once they go ahead and they do that and they commit those horrific acts, they feel as if they have no way out. And they're so committed that they try to take everyone out and themselves included. Uh, And I, I firmly do believe that. You mentioned the uh, puppeteer pulling the strings, former President Obama. Um, and this is, I have to go to your Twitter page. Speaking of Uvalde, he, for some reason, wanted to tweet about George Floyd um, after this horrific shooting. He said, as we grieve the children of Uvalde today, we should take time to recognize that two years have passed since the murder of George Floyd under the knee of a police officer. His killing stays with us all to this day, especially those who loved him. He tweeted that within a day or two of the horrific shooting. And you responded, you're a pathetic human being. Pray for the families of Uvalde. Talk about that. Yeah, he's a pathetic human being. Yeah, he really is. He he doesn't care about the families of Uvalde. He doesn't care about the children that just lost their lives. He's showing you what he cares about. He cares about George Floyd. He cares about police brutality. He thinks that black people in this country are being treated unfairly and unjust. And let, me just, is, uh, let me just interrupt you. I'm sorry. What, what, what is he getting out of that? Do you feel, listen, he's a smart guy. Everything's calculated. Why would he put that tweet out? Why would it, it was so insensitive. Even the people on the, his, his biggest supporters, I think were turned off. Why was he, he could, doing it? Cause I don't think he's such a smart guy. I don't think he ever was. I think people like him uh, like to tell you how smart they are, but never listen. And that was his approach as commander in chief. And that's his approach now as a civilian. But no, I don't think he was thinking. I think, well, no, I take that back, Nate. He was thinking. There was intent there. There was a thousand percent intent. He told you exactly what he cared about. And those two things aren't even correlated with one another. You're talking about a crazy domestic terrorist 
right? Who goes into the school, a school and murders children and a couple of adults. It's horrific. And then he compares it to George Floyd and the state of our country. They're not even remotely similar. So what he's telling you is, I maybe care about the children in Uvalde. I maybe care about their families and parents, but here's what I really care about. And here's what I really want you to focus on is this movement and George Floyd and how much this has impacted our country and how possibly maybe in Obama's mind, something like this George Floyd, which kicked off the summer riots, uh, you know, that no one ever wants to talk about anymore and just talk about the sixth, you know, cover all that up. The Democrats always want to put wool over your eyes. And I'll go back to Afghanistan for one second. We withdraw from Afghanistan. Three days later, everyone in our country is met with an OSHA mandate for more than people with 50 employees. Why did they do that? They didn't do that because they thought they were doing the right thing by protecting the American people. They did that to get you off of Afghanistan. Obama just did the same thing, except he redirected it, right? It's something new. Don't focus on this horrific tragedy because he knows it has nothing to do with gun control. It's a straw man argument. It's weak as it can possibly be. Focus on George Floyd because this was wrong. This was unjust in his opinion, right? And that's what his real message is. And that's what he's driving at. Yeah, I, I'm shocked by that. The, listen, we all, the, the George Floyd thing was horrific. We all know that. But the, the timing and insensitive nature of that tweet, I, I'm still baffled. I really am. And I don't think, I don't think very highly of Obama, trust me. I'm yeah. baffled. I, look, you would think that a president, a former president would have more tact and be more respectful other than to tweet that out. Now, I, I'm going to go ahead and put the blame on him. It's his Twitter account. I don't care if it was one of his staffers who tweeted it. There was obviously intent behind it. He has stood behind it. He has not come out with a statement apologizing for his comment that I'm aware of. Um, so, you know, it seems like that's his message and he's sticking to it. And there it is. Yeah. Hey, man, this has been really fascinating, extremely insightful. And I really appreciate it. Before we finish it up, last thing, um, you're running for Congress, obviously, 7th District in Ohio. You had 72%, something like that, of the vote in the primary this past May. So you yeah. destroyed the field. And, uh, and here we go. So what are you planning on doing? How are you going to win this campaign? Why should the voters vote for you? And what's your long-term goal once you get to Congress? Yeah. The voters of the 7th District should look at somebody who's going to help them with the issues that we face today. Not hypothetical issues, but issues that are affecting us in terms of inflation, energy independence, feeling safe, making sure that we bring the hurt to China and have election integrity with, within our country and have a secure Southern border. Those are the things that I am committed to restoring back in our country that we had just a short year and a half ago that we have lost within that time frame. That is what I'm going to do for the people of this district, this state and this country is that I'm going to be relentless in my fight to pursue that and to get that done with other legislators and members in Congress. And a part of that I'm giving 25% of my salary back to the people of the 7th District of Ohio, which is roughly $35,000 to $40,000 every single year. I will be taking that and giving the taxpayer money back to the taxpayer. And I'm doing that because all of these people who run for office, right? They say they're going to do X, Y, and Z and sponsor X and Y legislation. They never get it done. They never truly give back. They want to go there to benefit themselves, to elevate their platforms and make sure they get a payday as soon as they leave the halls of Congress or in some cases stay there forever. That's not me. I'm giving a quarter of it back and I'm never taking a federal pension. 
So I'm not seeking anything out of this other than to do good for the people of the seventh district. Now I would take a look at any other member who's donated their salary. There are people who are far, 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 far wealthier than I am. Uh, and that could put me in their back pocket every single day and twice on Sunday. Let's see if they give a quarter of their salary back or half of it or never take a federal pension. They won't because they enjoy the lifestyle too much and how, they be tr- and how they're treated. Now, moving forward, we have to unify this country. We have to bring everyone together. I mean, look, Democrats aren't bad people. Now, do some of them have warped ideology? And did we discuss that for the past 40 some odd minutes? Yeah, we did. And they do. But these things need to be worked on together. You know, we're in a pendulum, right? We, we, you know, people thought we were here with Trump, but we weren't. His policies were here. It was his rhetoric that made everyone think he was here. But his policies were, were very spot on. And, and I'd say, you know, a little bit more than right of center. And then you've got Joe Biden who's all the way over here. And so we're going like this. And at some point, we're going to have to- The pendulum swinging is what you're showing us. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and, and we need to get back to the middle of that pendulum and we need to bring everyone together and everyone on the same page and really just lay out a game plan for our country of how we can benefit. Here are our metrics. Here's how we can cut the national debt. Here are the programs that we can get rid of that will save us. And hey, let's not print $40 billion that we don't have to send to another country that's not going to be supervised. We have no idea where that money's going yet. People like you and me and everyone else out in the state of Ohio and every other country, sorry, in every other state in our country are going to be affected by that because it's going to it's going to help inflation and inflation is only going to continue to rise. Mm. So at the end, in looking towards the future, Democrats and Republicans, we're all friends. We need to come together and work on good pieces of legislation for the people of this country. If not, then this whole thing will implode and nothing will ever get done. And I think that that hopefully we'll see that, you know, by the time 2022 comes around with a slate of a new freshman class, hopefully with a number above 60. Mm, That'll be wild and uh, eye opening for everybody to see what's going on, because most people are fed up with with the last several years. Uh, I did say one last thing, but you meant you mentioned uh, these lifers or these people that are in Congress or the in the Senate for, you know, your, your, your term limit stuff, you're not going to be very popular amongst the Nancy Pelosi's of the world. No, and that's okay with me. I don't want to be your friend and I don't want to be popular with them either. Um, you know, I'll pass them in the hallway. We'll take meetings, we'll do whatever. I'll be cordial. But the fact of the matter is people like her have abused the system so much so that she's become a multi, multi, multi-millionaire off of it doing insider trading. And someone like her husband who gets a DUI and a Porsche, which by the way, probably isn't an electric vehicle. I'm sure that Porsche was probably operated off gas, if I'm assuming, unless it was a Taycan or a Taycan. Um, <laughs> highly doubt it. Um, but all that being said, you know, the, they're out of their minds, but we, we all need to come together. Um, and, and, and there's just the double standard is real. And at the end of the day, once we can unify our country, we'll be in a much better spot. And I think we're Joe Biden actually brings us closer to that point Every single day he's in office. That's a good point. I guess if he's done something good, he's actually united people on both sides of the aisle. He has united to dislike him very much in his policies because for the first time that I can see since 2007, 2008, Americans are hurting. It's not fiction. It's real. I mean, you go to the grocery store, go to the gas pump. I mean, wherever. And even if you're in a small border town in Texas and you see all these illegal immigrants coming over, I mean, we are affected by that. And Ohio is a border state. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, without question. And, and, I'll, and I'll, I'll shut up after this, Nate, but I, I got a kick out of this. And by a kick, I was disturbed by it. There was a, an Ohio man, they called him. They called him an Ohio man who came through our southern border, who lived in Columbus, who tried to kill President George W. Bush, right? Mm-hmm. But the media called him an Ohio man. No, you're not an Ohio man. You're a jihadi terrorist who came through our southern border and decided to settle in Columbus, Ohio. Mm-hmm. You're not an Ohio man. Um, wow. I mean, that's where we've gone, right? Yeah. So That's a perfect example. And summarizes everything we've talked about perfectly. Max Miller for Congress, votemaxmiller.com. We'll link you up in the show notes. You guys could check out his social media and everything from the website or in the show notes. Hey, man, uh, we'll stay in touch. Look forward to seeing you on the campaign trail and best of luck this coming fall. Definitely. Thank you, Nate. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it, brother. Thank you, everybody, for listening to another episode of the Optimal Life Podcast. If you haven't yet, please subscribe and follow the podcast wherever you're listening. And you could also leave a review. Apple Podcasts, of course. You could leave reviews and ratings. Spotify, you could leave reviews and ratings. And several and many other podcast apps. Wherever you may be listening, please tell a friend, tell a family member. Let them know about the podcast. And we will see you next time.